Section 12 of The Begum's Fortune by Jules Verne. Translated by W. H. G. Kingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12. The Council. The hatred which the King of Steel bore to Dr. Saracen's work was no secret. Everyone knew that his was a rival city, but no one would have believed him capable of attacking a peaceful town and endeavoring to destroy it at a blow. The article in the New York Herald was, however, positive on the point. The correspondence of that provincial journal had penetrated Herr Schultz's designs, and, as they said, there was not an hour to spare. The worthy doctor was confounded. Like all honest-hearted men, he refused, as long as he could, to believe in the evil designs of others. It seemed to him impossible that a human being could be so wicked as to wish to destroy without sufficient reason, and from simple malice, a city, which was, in a certain sense, the common property of mankind. Just think that our average mortality will this year be only one and a quarter in every hundred, he exclaimed naively, that there is not a boy of ten years old who does not know how to read, that not a murder or theft has been committed since the foundation of Frankville, and these barbarians want to destroy the successful experiment at its very beginning? No, I cannot believe that a chemist, a savant, were he a hundred times a German, could be capable of such atrocity. They were compelled, however, to trust to the evidence of a paper thoroughly devoted to their undertaking and act without delay. The first moment of dismay passed, Dr. Saracen regaining the command of his feelings, thus addressed his friends. "'Gentlemen, you are members of the Civic Council, and it is your duty as well as mine to take all necessary measures for the safety of the town. What ought we to do first? "'Is there no possibility of arranging matters?' said Monsieur Lentz. "'Can we not honorably avoid war?' "'That is impossible,' replied Otto. "'Herr Schultz evidently will have it at any price.' His hate will not allow him to come to terms. Very well, exclaimed the doctor. We shall be ready to receive him. Do you think, Colonel, that anything can resist the cannons of Stahlstadt? Any human force can be efficaciously combated by another human force, answered Colonel Hendon. But we need not think of defending ourselves by the same means and the same arms which Herr Schultz will use to attack us. The construction of engines of war capable of opposing his would take a long time to make, and I do not know, besides, if we should succeed in fabricating them, since we have not special workshops. I can only see one chance of safety— that of preventing the enemy from reaching us and rendering an investment impossible. I will go immediately and convoke the council, said Dr. Saracen, and he led his guests into his study. It was a simply furnished room, three sides being covered with shelves loaded with books, whilst the fourth presented below several pictures and curiosities 
a row of numbered openings similar to ear trumpets. Thanks to the telephone, said he, we can hold a council in Frankville whilst everyone remains at home. The doctor touched a warning bell, which instantaneously communicated with the houses of all the members. In less than three minutes, the word present brought successively by each wire announced that the council was sitting. The doctor placed himself before the mouthpiece, rung the bell, and said, The meeting is open. My honorable friend, Colonel Hendon, will speak to make a communication of the deepest importance. The colonel, in his turn, placed himself before the telephone, and after reading the articles from the New York Herald, he proposed that immediate measures should be taken to impede the advance of the enemy. He had scarcely concluded when number six put the question— does the colonel believe a defense possible, in case the means by which he hopes to prevent the enemy from reaching us does not succeed? Colonel Hendon replied in the affirmative. The question and answer instantaneously reached each invisible member of the council, as well as the explanations which preceded them. Number seven asked how long, in his estimation, it would take for the people of Frankville to prepare. The colonel could not say, but it would be advisable to act as if they were to be attacked in a fortnight. Number two, should we await the attack, or would you think it preferable to prevent it? We must do all in our power to prevent it, answered the colonel, and if we are threatened with a fleet, we must blow up Herr Schultz's ships with torpedoes. On this, Dr. Saracen offered to call into council the most distinguished chemists, as well as the most experienced artillery officers, and give to them the task of examining the plans which Colonel Hendon had ready to submit to them. Question from number one. What is the sum necessary for the immediate commencement of the works of defense? We should have at our disposal from fifteen to twenty millions of dollars. I propose that the Citizens' Assembly be instantly convoked. President Saracen, I will put it to the vote. The bells in each telephone rang twice, announcing that the proposal was unanimously adopted. It was half-past eight. The council had only lasted eighteen minutes and had not disturbed anyone. The popular assembly was convoked by means as simple and almost as expeditious. Dr. Saracen communicated by telephone the vote of the council to the town hall. An electric appeal was instantly set in motion at the summit of each of the columns in every square of the city. The columns were surmounted by luminous dial plates, on which the hands, moved by electricity, pointed to half-past eight the hour for the assembly. This clamorous call, continuing for a quarter of an hour, brought all the inhabitants out of their houses. They glanced up at the nearest dial, and ascertaining that some national duty required their presence at the town hall, they hastened thither as fast as possible. In less than forty-five minutes the assembly was complete— Dr. Saracen was already in the place of honor, surrounded by the council, whilst Colonel Hendon waited at the foot of the tribune, 
until permission was given him to speak. The greater number of the citizens already knew the reason of the meeting being called. In fact, the discussion of the city council, automatically stereographed by the town hall telephone, had been immediately sent to the papers, printed in a special edition, and placarded all over the town. The municipal hall was an immense building, roofed with glass and brilliantly lighted by gas. The crowd which filled it was calm and orderly, everyone standing. All the faces were cheerful, perfect health, an active and regular life, and a quiet conscience, placed them above any unruly passion of alarm or anger. At exactly half-past eight, the president rang his bell and silence fell on the assembly. The colonel ascended the tribune. There, in sober but forcible language, without useless ornament or oratorical pretensions, the language of a man who, knowing what he is talking about, clearly expresses himself, Colonel Hendon related the inveterate hate which Herr Schultz bore against Frankville, Dr. Saracen, and his work, and the formidable preparations announced by the New York Herald, destined to destroy their city and its inhabitants. "'It is for you to decide what is best to be done,' he continued. "'Some people, possessing neither courage nor patriotism, might perhaps to give up the land and leave the aggressors to do what they wish with their new home.' but I am certain beforehand that such a pusillanimous proposal would find no echo among my fellow citizens, men who are able to understand the greatness of the object aimed at by the founders of the model city, men who have accepted its laws, and necessarily men of heart and intelligence, sincere representatives of progress, you— will do everything to save our incomparable town, the glorious monument raised by science, to ameliorate the fallen condition of man. Your duty, therefore, is to give your lives for the cause you represent. Thunders of applause greeted this peroration. Several speakers supported Colonel Hendon's motion. Dr. Saracen, having impressed the necessity of constituting a committee of defense, which was to take immediate measures, with all the secrecy indispensable in military operations, the proposal was adopted. A member of the Civic Council then suggested that five million dollars should be voted for the works. A show of hands ratified this measure. At five and twenty minutes past ten, the meeting was over, and the citizens of Frankville were about to leave the hall, when an unexpected incident occurred. The empty tribune was suddenly occupied by a stranger of most curious appearance. He had sprung up as if by magic. His face showed that he was laboring under frightful excitement, but his attitude was calm and resolute. His torn and muddy clothes, his bleeding forehead— told of something extraordinary. At sight of him, everyone paused. With an imperative gesture, the stranger commanded silence. Who was he? Whence had he come? No one, not even Dr. Saracen, ventured to ask him. I have just escaped from Stahlstadt, he said. 
Herr Schultz had condemned me to death. God has allowed me to reach you in time to attempt to save you. I am not unknown to you all. My venerated master, Dr. Saracen, can tell you, I hope, that in spite of my appearance, rendering me unrecognizable even to him, some confidence may be placed in Max Brookman. Max! exclaimed both the doctor and Otto at once starting towards him. He stopped them by a sign. Max had been indeed miraculously saved. After forcing the grating just as he was almost suffocated, the current swept him onwards and two minutes later threw him on the bank outside Stahlstadt, indeed, but almost lifeless. For several hours the brave young fellow lay stretched motionless in the darkness, far from all help on the lonely desert. When consciousness returned, it was daylight. He thanked God that he had escaped from that horrible Stahlstadt. He was no longer a prisoner. The next moment his thoughts were concentrated on Dr. Saracen, his friends and fellow citizens. I must save them, he repeated. By a supreme effort he got upon his feet. He was thirty miles from Frankville, and he had thirty miles to traverse on foot, for there was no railway in that direction, not even a cart or a horse to be got, for the whole country round the terrible steel city was shunned. He pressed on, however, without taking a moment's rest, and at a quarter past ten arrived at the city. The placards which covered the walls told him all. He found that the inhabitants had been warned of the threatened danger, but they were not aware of its frightful nature, or that it was immediate. The catastrophe premeditated by Herr Schultz was to take place on this very evening, at a quarter to twelve. It was now a quarter past ten. Max had not a moment to lose. He sped through the town, and at twenty-five minutes past ten, as the assembly was about to break up, he scaled the tribune. Not in a month, my friends, he cried. Not even in a week must you expect the danger, but in an hour, this awful catastrophe, a rain of iron and fire will burst upon your town an engine worthy the invention of a fiend which will carry thirty miles is at this very moment pointed against us i have seen it let the women and children seek shelter in the deepest and strongest cellars or let them instantly leave the town and take refuge in the mountains all the men must prepare to combat the fire by every possible means fire will for the first time be your only enemy neither armies nor soldiers will march against you the adversary who menaces you disdains all ordinary modes of attack if the plans and calculations of a man whose power for evil is well known to you are realized unless herr schultz is mistaken for the first time in his life fire will suddenly break out in at least a hundred places all over frankville we shall presently have to face the flames at a hundred different points whatever happens the population must be saved first 
such of your houses and monuments which cannot be preserved, or even the whole town, time and money can restore. In Europe, Max would have been thought mad, but in America it is not wise to refuse to believe in any miracle of science, however unexpected. So, by Dr. Saracen's advice, the young engineer was listened to and believed in. The crowd, awed as much by the accent and appearance of the speaker as by his words, obeyed, without even dreaming of disputing his commands. The doctor answered for Max Brookman, that was enough. Orders were immediately given, and messengers sent out in every direction. As to the inhabitants, some withdrew to the cellars of their dwellings, resigned to suffer all the horrors of a bombardment. Others on foot, horseback, or in carriages, hastened out into the country and ascended the steeps of the Cascade Mountains. In the meantime, the able-bodied men collected in the square and in different places pointed out by the doctor everything that would serve to subdue fire, that is to say, water, earth, and sand. In the hall, the deliberation continued. Max was evidently beset by some idea which filled his brain to the exclusion of every other thought. He muttered to himself, "'At a quarter to twelve, is it really possible that that villainous Schultz will destroy us all with his execrable invention?' Suddenly, Max drew out his pocketbook. He made a gesture requiring silence, and then, pencil in hand, rapidly put down several figures on one of the pages. As he did so, his brow cleared. His face became radiant. "'Ah, my friends!' he exclaimed. "'My friends! Either these figures are liars, or else... All that we fear will vanish like a nightmare before the evidence of a problem in the science of projectiles, the solution of which I have till this moment sought in vain. Herr Schultz is mistaken. The threatened danger is but a dream. For once, his science is at fault. Nothing of what he foretold will come to pass. It's impossible. His formidable shell will fly over Frankville without touching it, and if there is anything to fear, it will be only in the future. What could Max mean? His friends did not understand. The young Alsatian then explained the result of his calculations. In his clear ringing voice, he explained his demonstration in such a way as to render it luminous, even to the most ignorant. It was light succeeding darkness, calm following agony. Not only would the projectile leave untouched the doctor's city, but it would touch nothing whatever. It was destined to lose itself in space. Dr. Saracen acknowledged the correctness of Max's calculations, and then, pointing to the luminous dial in the hall, "'In three minutes,' he exclaimed, "'we shall know whether Schultz or Max Brookman is right. "'Whatever happens, my friends, "'we need not regret any of the precautions we have taken, "'and we still must neglect nothing "'which can baffle the inventions of our enemy. "'If his design fails for the present, "'as Max has just given us reason to hope, "'it won't be the last. "'Schultz's hate will never be stifled or arrested.' "'Come!' 
exclaimed Max. All followed him into the square. Three minutes passed in breathless suspense. The quarter before twelve was toiled forth from the great clock. Four seconds after, a dark mass was seen high above their heads. Quick as thought, it rushed onwards, and with a sinister hiss, soon disappeared far beyond the town. A pleasant journey, do it, shouted Max with a burst of laughter. If Herr Schultz's shell keeps up that speed, it will never again fall upon terrestrial soil. In two minutes, a roar was heard like distant thunder. This was the report of the cannon in the bull tower, the sound reaching Frankville a hundred and thirteen seconds after the projectile had passed at the rate of four hundred and fifty miles an hour. End of section twelve.